It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan. E.A. Buccianeri once said, So it's true, when all is said and done, grief is the price we pay for love. Boy, that's exciting. That's pump them up. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. This is a call-in format, and we are caller-friendly. So let's get started. Good evening, Jonathan. What's happening? What's up? What's going on? What's the subject matter tonight? Good evening, Rick. Hey, um, I'm talking to you actually from out of state. We're at our good friends here in Florida and uh, the Goodmans, and um, enjoying being able to do the podcast, not from our usual area yeah well that's good down in sunny florida huh it's beautiful down here well that's good so what's what's the question my man well rick it is is suicide an unforgivable sin and our theme text is found in psalms 38 verse 4 for my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me sometimes you forget that life is precious and it's worth fighting for. When someone dies as a result of suicide, that fight has been lost. When we lose a loved one to suicide, we might ask ourselves, have we become so entangled in the web of social standing and status that we somehow stepped over and ignored our loved one who was struggling with being able to hold on to the sacredness of life? Were we so absorbed in our own stress and schedule that we were blind to our loved one's battle? Or did they do such a convincing job of hiding their pain that the whole thing was just a shocking tragedy? What happened to our loved one that they found themselves drawn downward into a vortex of torment and suffering so dark that they despaired of life itself? How do we better understand and cope with suicide. How does God treat those who take their own lives? Jonathan, tonight is a very, very sober subject. It certainly is, Rick. And this conversation, folks, tonight is not for children, okay? As we will be addressing the stark realities of the real-life experiences of some who have come all too close to suicide. So, folks, if you do have children, please, please use discretion uh, as we approach this subject because we're going to be very blunt about it, and we're going to listen to some very blunt, real-life stories of those who attempted to take their own lives. So, Jonathan, as we get started, we want to get right into the meat of the matter. Let's first take a look at why people end up taking or attempting to take or taking their own lives. This is from D News, uh, a YouTube channel, and uh, it has some very interesting statistics. So let's just let's listen to this. 
Hey friends, I'm Lacey Green and you're watching D-News. Got some dark, very dark stuff for you today? You have been warned. Over the past 45 years, the global suicide rate has risen by 60%. In the United States, it's more common than car accident deaths, making it a worrisome public health issue. So what's going on? Why are people killing themselves? It's a loaded question, obviously, but researchers at the University of British Columbia are trying to put the pieces together. They just published the largest study ever done on the motivations for suicide. What they found was that many of the assumed motivations for suicide aren't reality. Things like impulsive personality types, attention seekers, or financial problems weren't the cause. For 100% of the participants, they found that suicide was a way to solve a problem. The problem of ongoing and overwhelming emotional pain. The problem of hopelessness so profound that it consumes you completely. The problem of hopelessness so profound that it consumes you completely. That says an awful lot, doesn't it? Rick, to solve a problem, you know, I would have never expected that to be the reason. And it's, it's hard to understand. So you don't have to deal with it anymore. You take yourself away from it. Yeah. You know, how tragic. And, and the, the depth of the tragedy, actually, we're only just beginning to, we're to, to be able to unfold the depth of the tragedy. And we really do want to unfold it. We want to unfold it very clearly. So, folks, if you're listening now and you know someone who perhaps has been struggling, get them on with you. Get them to listen because this, we're going to, to, to as sensitively as possibly, possible, look into and observe the minds of those who've actually gone down this road and because they are willing to share with us the, the, the horror that happened in their own minds. And, and you're right, Jonathan, it's to solve a problem. And, and you think, if you've never been down that road before, that doesn't sound right. It's like, wait, 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 that's not solving a problem. That's making a bigger problem. But You're right, you're right. So how is it solving a problem? Stay, stay tuned in and, and listen, okay? Before we get into all of that, though, Jonathan, we want to go through some statistics on United States veterans because this is very disturbing in relation to suicide. And this is from MilitaryTimes.com. Roughly 20 veterans a day commit suicide nationwide, according to new data, from the Department of Veterans Affairs, a figure that dispels the often quoted but problematic 22 a day, estimate yet solidifies the disturbing mental health crisis the n- number implied. In 2014, the latest year available, more than 7,400 veterans took their own lives, accounting for 18% of all suicides in America. Veterans make up at least 9% of the U.S. population. And 70% of veterans who took their own lives were not regular users of VA services. The new data being released publicly today is the most comprehensive suicide study ever conducted by the department. All right. So when you look at that, and Jonathan, this thing about veterans is, is close to me because my own son is in the Coast Guard. Yes, he is. My own yes. son does dangerous work in the Coast Guard. And, and I think about um, these statistics, and it really is a very, um, it's very moving and very, very uh, tragic to think that those who voluntarily put their lives on the line and do things so that we can be free are so much more liable to suicide 
because of the fallout from the things that they've been exposed to. So, Jonathan, at this, at this moment, be, be, because we're talking about the veterans who protect us every day, let's just, let, let's just take a moment, just a moment of silence out of respect for them and their families in dealing with such deep and dark, tragic experiences in their lives. You know, the question that you started with, Jonathan, was, is suicide an unforgivable sin? And I think because this is such an intense subject, we want to get that question answered right off the bat, right away. That's a great idea. So we can get into the actual subject matter of what happens with, with, with people getting to that point and how can those of us who might be around them, how can we be able to better see it and reach out and be actually helpful? So to answer the stated question, is suicide an unforgivable sin? Um, let's go to a scripture that uh, describes the unforgivable sin. And as we go to the scripture, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, the answer is no. Suicide is not related to the unforgivable sin as mentioned in the scriptures. And Jonathan, let's go to Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6 for that. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Well, Rick, denying the ransom after applying it to yourself, ourselves, um, is a very serious matter when you give your life to the Lord and right. accept it. And I had a question asked of me this week, is letting the distractions of life that can make someone forget about God or not include him in his or her life, is that the same as falling away from God? No, 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 no. Not like, not like in this verse. There, there is such a vast difference. I can't even begin to describe it. And when you begin to start to try to put those two things together, you're in big trouble, okay? Because you're interpreting human weakness for a human choice, See, in our human weakness, sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes our minds go off in the wrong direction. Sometimes we get depressed. Sometimes those things happen. But if in our heart we still love God and want to serve him and want to be like Jesus, even though we're falling down, you're not in line for this type of sin. You're not in line for this, like you described. Because what this sin is, Jonathan, it is a, a clear and informed decision it's not a reaction. It's not an emotion. It's a clear and informed decision to walk away from God and Jesus. And that's after you've been blessed and fully filled with his spirit. Right. And see, there, that's the big thing. Having been blessed by God and being given his spirit are also two different things. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've got a program coming up in, in a few weeks about how do I get the Holy Spirit. And folks, you've got to listen to that to understand that it's only those who've been given God's Spirit and had it indwelling in them that are even liable to this. 
And I will tell you, Jonathan, that most Christians, and this, this may sound like a, a harsh statement, but I'm going to make it, we're going to move on. Most Christians do not, do not have God's Spirit dwelling within them. Because it's all about sacrifice. It's all about following in Jesus' footsteps. It's not about a feeling. So suffice that to, to, to answer that part of the question. So this sin, Jonathan, is a cogent choice. It is the, the, the decision for suicide is not. It is based in despair. It is grief and sorrow and hopelessness. And even though there is a choice, it is clouded overclouded, over, overcrowded with distress. And that's what we want to make a difference on. So, is suicide the unforgivable sin? No, it's not. Just let's leave that portion of the conversation right there. All right, having said that, let's go now to a TED Talk from Mark Hennick. Now, Mark Hennick is a young man. We were going to come back to him every segment throughout the program because he attempted to take his own life two separate times. And in this TED Talk, he graphically describes not only what he did, but more importantly, he describes the condition of his mind when he attempted to do what he did. And when we can begin to grasp the condition of his mind, we can begin to understand the level of despair. So let's go to this soundbite, Why We Choose Suicide. Again, Mark Hennick, it was a TED Talk uh, in uh, Toronto. I was barely a teenager the first time I tried to kill myself. If I knew then what I know now, it probably wouldn't have changed very much. Sometimes it doesn't matter what you know, what you feel just takes over. And there's so many ways like this that our perception becomes limit, limited. In fact, our perception is its limits. And these limits, they're created by our biology, by our psychology, by our society. These are the factors which create that bubble which surrounds us that is our perceptual field, our world as we know it. This bubble, our perceptual field, it has this incredible ability to expand and to contract based on changes in any of those factors which create and inform it. Most of us have experienced the challenges of the contraction of our perception from time to time. Think about that time when you got cut off in traffic. Maybe you felt your heart rate start to quicken, your face flush. You jammed on your brakes in order to avoid a collision. And when you did, you focused in on that one license plate as it sped by. Maybe the only thing to go through your mind at that time was how creative you could be in the words you were about to hurl out the window at that guy. You know, and, and that is a small example, but it's a great example of what uh, Mark is describing here as the contraction of our perceptual field. And, and we, need, we need to pause right here and understand what that means. When, when your perceptual field contracts, what it means is most of us see several things around us in our lives. And it's all happening simultaneously and our brain is processing all of these different things. When your perceptual field contracts due to depression or, or, or several other things, you can't see all those other things. You just see fewer and fewer and fewer things. And when someone becomes, gets to the point of suicidal, they see just one thing. And that's all they're capable of seeing. And if we can get that, 
then we can begin to understand the depth of the tragedy that uh, that 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 brings us to the point of, of suicide. You know, emotional despair and anguish are common in Scripture, and David. And we're going to do a lot of commenting on on David the psalmist. Um, was very good at describing this same kind of difficulty. Let's go to Psalm chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, Save me because of your loving kindness, for there's no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. When you think about the writing and the, the, the expression of David, uh, there is no mention of you in death, O oh God. I mean, what's he thinking of? He's thinking of death. I'm weary with my sighing. I'm just so tired with the, the, the anxiety that is overwhelming, overwhelming me. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Doesn't that fit with what we're trying to get to and understand? It really does, Rick. What great despair he was going through in writing that. And he went through that kind of despair many, many times in his life. And by God's grace, he was a chosen vessel of God, and he wrote these things down. And when you see someone else going through it, perhaps, just perhaps, it can help you to, to realize that you're not alone. And really, that's one of the main messages of this first segment is, folks, if you are having despair to such a point, you are not alone. If you need someone to talk to, there's a number that you ought to call. It's 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. Talk. It is a suicide helpline. It's 24 hours a day. Please avail yourself of such things if you need help because life is absolutely, positively precious. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is, Is Suicide an Unforgivable Sin? Coming up, how often does the Bible talk about suicide and despair? That's next. Listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is Is Suicide an Unforgivable Sin? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866 985 4255. That's 866 866- 985 for all, or you could message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. And Jonathan, during the break, we uh, got a message from the uh, CQ app 
Uh, Teresa in Mississippi makes a comment. I believe Christ made allowances for those that commit suicide when facing things like incurable diseases. And, and, and you know, and that's that's a good comment. And one of the things I want to add to that comment is that depression is a disease. And we have to understand it as a disease. It's not the kind of thing that you can say, okay, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to just snap right out of it. It doesn't work that way. A lot of times it's biological. And, and, and Mark in his, that first soundbite mentioned the biology of, of, of the human frame that sometimes brings us to that kind of a point. Let's go to another soundbite. This is another TED Talk. There's, there are going to be three TED Talks features to, featured tonight. Each of the people talking uh, has, has attempted suicide. This is John Neuenberg, uh, The Cultural Taboos of, sat, uh, of Suicide. And uh, he's giving a, a practical sense of you know, what, what to do with the experience. Start that understanding by educating yourself. Although the exact cause of most mental illness is not known, it's becoming clear through research that it's a combination of psychological, biological, social, and environmental factors. Mental illness is not a flaw in character. Get the facts so that we can stop the stigma. And third, let's talk about it. The elephant in the room is a metaphor for an obvious truth that's being ignored or unspoken. The best way to deal with an elephant? To name it. Get it out in the open. Let's talk openly about how mental illness and suicide affects us all, either directly or through a family member, colleague, or a friend. Let's talk openly about mental illness and suicide as part of normal life. And that seems like a strange thing to say. Let's talk about it as part of normal life. But it is part of normal life. And we need to be able to put it on the table without that stigma. And, and, and you know, Jonathan, going through these, listening to these, these people talk about their experiences has really helped me to, to better appreciate the fact that this is, this is a normal part of the fallen sinful world that we live in. It just is. Just like, just, just like cancer is a normal part of our, our, our world, so is, so is suicide and the attempt uh, at it. Uh, and, and Rick, um, I was thinking, it made me think of a lot of questions as going through the subject. Could becoming an alcoholic or a drug addict be kind of a cry for help? Um, a type of suicide, since in a way it's hiding from their problems and it's also destroying their lives. And Rick, it often leads to literal death. It does. And, uh, and, and sometimes, you're right, sometimes there's a suicide that, is, that, that is, occurs by an act. Yes. And sometimes there's the suicide that occurs by a lifestyle. Mm. And both are equally tragic. And for those of us who are not in that situation, what can we do? What should we do? Let's go to a little bit on, on the Bible, because it's interesting that the Bible actually deals with suicide many, many times. Go, we got this, uh, these statistics on the Bible and suicide from gotquestions.org. The Bible mentions six specific people who committed suicide. Abimelech, Saul, Saul's armor bearer. Uh, here's a good one. Ahithophel, Ahithophel. right? <laughs> Um, Zimri and Judas. Five of them were wicked, sinful men. Not equal. Not enough is said about um, Saul's armor bearer regarding um, that, but to make a judgment on his character. But some consider Samson an instance of suicide. 
But Samson's goal was to kill the Philistine, not himself. Yeah, I don't think Samson was an, instant, uh, an instance of suicide because he was, he was a warrior and he was at war. But it's interesting that these five or six of the six recorded suicides in Scripture, three of them revolved around the life of King David. That's a good point. Saul, Saul's armor bearer, and Ahithophel. And if you remember, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather who had been David's advisor. And a, a, a tragic story follows that. But the Bible has many experiences of suicide. And, you know, that's one of the things about Scripture that I really appreciate is that it tells us what's real. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't shy away from uh, the darkness and, and, and the difficulties of life. It does tell us what's real and how all of that works. We're going to be focusing on Psalm chapter 38. That you, the, the theme verse that you read right at the beginning of the program was Psalm 38, verse 4. Um, so Psalm 38 is going to be our theme chapter. It's a little hard to figure out exactly what it's about. So we went through some commentaries and found one that tried to you know, kind of focus us. What is this psalm specifically about? This is from Adam Clark. Several conjectures have been made relative to the occasion of which this psalm was composed. And the most likely is that it was in reference to some severe affliction which David had after his illicit commerce with Bathsheba. But of what nature we are left to conjecture from the third, fifth, and seventh verses. Whatever it was, he deeply repents for it, asks pardon, and earnestly entreats support from God. So that's kind of a sense of the, of the 38th Psalm. And, and Rick, I'm not sure if I agree with Clark's thoughts. I, I think it's more that God exposed his gross sins to, to himself, David, and after his realization, he repented of those sins because they were brought to such clear light in his life. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing about the, many of the Psalms is he is just showing us the, 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 the tragedy of the suffering as a result of his sins or as a result of, of, of just his frame, whatever it might be. And, and that's what Psalm 38 does. It shows us the tragedy of the suffering. And we want to, we want to be able to key in, key in on that. Uh, we're going to go back to Mark Hennick, uh, the original young man who was talking about um, suicide. And uh, this next soundbite is very graphic. Again, so if you have children that are listening along with you, uh, it is my opinion that they shouldn't be listening to the next soundbite because it's graphic about how he's trying to take his own life. And the reason we're playing it is not for the, for the sake of, wow, that was graphic. It's for the sake of saying, here's what happened. This, this, this young man was only in eighth grade when this next uh, soundbite occurred. Now, eventually, your perception would have returned to normal. You would have relaxed. You would have went on with your day. You probably would have even forgotten about it. But imagine you didn't. Imagine you stayed there, stuck there, in that narrow, dark place. Well, that's what it can be like to live with a mental illness. At least that's what it was like for me at the depth of my own mental illness as a teenager. My perception had become constricted and darkened and collapsed. I felt like an asthmatic who had lost his glasses in a hurricane. So when I was sitting in that chair, across from my eighth grade guidance counselor, the only thing that I could think was, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not enough. 
And it didn't matter if I was, because these were the constricted limits of my perception. So when I held that eight-inch chef's knife in my hand, and I raised it to my throat, and I pressed it there, and I felt the blood begin to trickle down my hand, the only thing I could think in that moment, nobody would even know you're gone. You can, I, I don't know about you, but you, you hear that and you feel the despair of that moment. And what he described was the inability to see or think anything else. His, his, his field of perception became so narrow that all that was left was you're not good enough and nobody will know that you're gone. Now, what happens with that is his eighth grade counselor, and we don't have a soundbite on this, but he leaps out of his chair, tackles him, wrestles the knife away, and saves his life. And he goes on with life, and he's going to attempt suicide again later on, and we'll get to that. But again, Jonathan, it's a matter of you can't see beyond the despair. And that is such a tragic place to be living. It's such a, a difficult place for us to end up going. We'd love to talk to you right now. We're live. Call us at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255. Or leave us a comment at christianquestions.com. Okay, let's go to Psalm 38. Uh, David is revealing a season of overwhelming despair. Let's start with verses uh, 1 through 8. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no anger, for your er there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So David is really referring to things that he has done to put him into this really difficult situation, and he feels the judgment of God essentially pressing down on him. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agony of my heart. So... What we see here, Jonathan, is he is sharing with everyone the depth of his own despair. And I think that for those of us who may be suffering from suicidal thoughts, this is an important, this is an important uh, perspective to have. Acknowledge. Acknowledge your own despair. Don't say, oh, it's not bad or you know, it doesn't matter. Acknowledge that it's there. That's all well and good for somebody who's in that situation. But, Jonathan, this program is just as much for those of us who are who, who we may know someone who is going through that. And so for those of us who know someone who may be, be struggling, what, what, what should we be doing in this situation? Well, Rick, we need to take clear notice of their despair. Now, how do you do that? And the answer is you pay attention. And when something seems a little bit off... Pay more attention. doesn't mean you have to sort of jump to, into action because it may be nothing. But then again, it may be something you don't know until you really pay attention. So for those 
suffering from suicidal thoughts, acknowledge your despair. And for those of us who know individuals in that situation, take clear notice that something's not right. Let's go back to Mark Hennick, the TED Talk, uh, and he's going to now start to share with us uh, his second attempt at suicide. Well, this is the part that I'm doing differently with you today. By sharing with you my experiences, I hope to raise my voice, and I hope to open those doors. And this is how I do it. I remember. I remember I was wandering the empty streets of my hometown. I was alone this time, unlike that other time. And it's because I wanted to die alone. My mind was running, screaming, shaking, collapsing in on itself again. When you're in that place and your perception is collapsing like that, those old thoughts kept coming back again. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not enough. So I walked up and I approached the railing to the overpass. I walked along it. I looked over. I came to a light post on my left-hand side and I stopped. Should I hang in there for just one more day? That's a phrase that people always seem to ask themselves when they're suicidal, I've found. Should I hang on there for just one more day? For what? To be that crazy kid? I've already held on for this long, and things haven't gotten any better. Why would I keep trying what hasn't been working? And again, you can see the field of perception just collapsed down to almost nothing. Why should I keep trying what hasn't been working? There's, there's, you end up with no other sensible choice in your own mind. Now, there's plenty of other sensible choices, but if you are not capable of seeing them, are they choices for you? They're not. That's where those of us who are not in the situation can really come in and, 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 and do some wonderful, wonderful things in terms of, of being there for those who need help. You know, David, King David, was a musician and a writer. Musicians and writers and artists are prone to deep emotions on the high side and on the low side. Emotions of distress, despair, and joy and exaltation. Acknowledging the pain as well as finding the source of peace. That's what David learned to do. He would acknowledge the pain, but he would also find the source of peace. Let's look at Psalm 69, verses 1 to 13, and we're going to go through this relatively quickly because we only have a couple minutes left in this segment. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in a deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for you, my God. So he's, he's again, he's acknowledging his despair, but he's also acknowledging his hope. My eyes fail while I wait for you, my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. Being wrongfully my enemies what i did not steal i then have to restore so life is essentially turned upside down nothing is the way it's supposed to be oh god it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me O oh lord god of hosts may those who seek you be not dishonored through me 
O God of Israel, because of your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And one of the things in this portion of verse, Jonathan, is he's saying, I don't want to be a bad example to others. And that's a great motivation. Sometimes the, 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 the end result of others is more important than our own end result, and we'll do something good as, as a result of that. Let, let's finish up the verses. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth for my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. So David is finding God in the midst of his great and deep despair. He acknowledges the pain, but he's also finding the source of peace in God. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject, Is Suicide an Unforgivable Sin? Coming up, once you acknowledge the despair of your life, where do you go with it? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, Is Suicide an Unforgivable Sin? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL, or you can message us on your app. All right, so Jonathan, as we uh, start this third segment of the uh, first hour here, uh, you know, the, the question is, well, where do you go? Where do you go when you've, when you've okay, I, I acknowledge my despair, and well, now what do you do? Uh, before we get back to the psalm and, and back to that question, we do have a special guest on the line, don't we? We certainly do, Rick. Um, To get a woman's perspective, we've invited Lonnie from the CQ team to share on tonight's topic. Welcome, Lonnie. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, could you please share with us your thoughts on our subject tonight? Yeah, I think this is such an important topic to discuss, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're doing a program to address it, because I've talked to so many people... Uh, who struggle with this. They, they know someone who has taken their own life, and they're, they're living in fear that their loved one is burning in hell or being tormented. Oh, how sad is that, that people are taught that false doctrine? It, it is. It really is. And it, it's heartbreaking. And I think that it's that misunderstanding that breeds that fear. And, you know, as I try to wrap my brain around this, I've had bad days, and so I know what it feels like to pray to God and ask for peace and release and rest um, from the stress of life that that I think we all can relate to can feel crushing at times. And I, I can't begin to comprehend, though, the thoughts and feelings of someone who truly is suicidal, who feels like they have nothing left to live for. And I would never assume that I could even imagine what that's like if I haven't gone through it myself. So I confess, I don't know what it's like, and I don't know how to fix it, and I don't know how to prevent it. So I have to go to what I do know. 
And and what I do know is with all of my heart, God is merciful and God is loving. Absolutely. And that, that reminds me of Psalms 8615. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And Lonnie, I can remember a time in my life when I was in despair and God helped me with his love and mercy and truth. He turned my life around. Yes, and I, I love that scripture. And we have so many scriptures like that that reassure us of God's love. And I do not believe that God's love is not powerful enough or that God is unwilling to show his mercy to those of the human race who are in that despair and need it the most. And that's actually the opposite. When people are hurting that badly, Psalm thirty-four, eighteen tells us, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So to me, I mean, based on scripture and reason, suicide is, is definitely not an unforgivable sin. And, and I also say reason because the idea that a loving God would punish someone who is already hurting so deeply, it's, it's one of the grossest misrepresentations of God's character, in, in my opinion. I mean, if you think about it, that would be like someone, uh, if they saw somebody injured or laying on the side of the road and, and you witnessed an onlooker who had the means and ability to help but just kind of stood by and watched the other person suf suffer, you'd think, well, that's kind of a crummy thing and maybe that's not such a good person. Yeah, but for then, sure. <laughs> but then it t if you go another step further and you see this onlooker, after not bothering to help one bit, go out of their way to walk up to that person who's suffering and in pain and give them a good swift kick in the gut. Oh. You'd, think, you'd think that's outrageous. And I, I think even in our most fallen state that we would say that was just wrong. That uh, sounds to me like a satanic disposition. There are even Christians with that dispos disposition when they say people deserve to go to hell. Um, that is their version of that word. Right, right. And it doesn't make sense that a God of love would behave that way. Um, and I also wanted to just mention one other thing that I try to keep in mind, and you touched on it just a little bit already. Um, but when, when I was in high school, one of my class projects was to choose a hero to research and portray for a day. And I picked Robin Williams. Uh, from the genie in Aladdin to Mrs. Doubtfire, I grew up with him, and I could quote just about uh, most of his movies to you. <laughs> and he will forever in my mind be one of the most talented actors and comedians. And I truly identified with him and admired him because he was the epitome of goofiness, happiness, joy. He was funny and carefree and loved life. At least that's what he portrayed to the world. And so when I learned that he took his own life, I thought to myself, Wow, you just never know what people might be struggling with way down deep in their core. And so the lesson for me was don't always assume that everyone is just fine. And like I said, you mentioned that a little bit. And as, as disciples of Jesus, we're told to be fishers of men. And I think that means our business needs to be people. Like good fishermen who are interested in everything about the fish, how they move, where they hang out, what they like to eat. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to be interested in people. We need to be a source of love and understanding 
and caring for those around us because we may unwittingly be the one thing that someone has when Satan tries to convince them that there is nothing left in this world for them and that there is no one who would understand. But the sad reality is that, like we, like we were hearing in some of the sound bites, when the perceptions of the mind are skewed and clouded, sometimes love and reason may not be enough to prevent someone from becoming a victim of suicide. And that is exactly why we need God's mercy. And we have it. We can be confident in it because it's promised to us. In Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. And so we never, ever have to fear because love casts out fear and we know God is love. So, Lonnie, your thoughts are that suicide would not be an unforgivable sin based on God's love and mercy. Thank you for your perspective on such a serious topic. Lonnie, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, she said so many things, uh, and, and there's a lot of value in that. You know, she, One of the things she said that really w- was, um, was fascinating to me, she says, you know, we have to be interested in people. And that's really something that, that's kind of special. Be interested in others. Jesus was, and we should be like Jesus. And, you know, she was talking about the, the greatness of God's love. And, you know, she's right about that. But then what about those who end up committing suicide? Did God's love fail them? And the answer is no. Because God's love will not find everyone yet. Not here, not now, not yet. But the, those who are called to follow Jesus are called for the ministry of reconciliation, which means that we have the opportunity to help them later in the resurrection. So Lonnie, thanks so much for your thoughts and your comments. Really appreciate uh, all of the thought that you put into uh, your perspective on this. Jonathan, Absolutely. Let, let's get back to... Um, the um, uh, uh, Psalm 38. Out of David's overwhelming despair comes a dark and lonely existence. So go to let's go to Psalm 38, verses 9 to 11. Jonathan, you there? Jonathan, are you there? Okay, Jonathan's not there. So um. <laughs> All right, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to call Jonathan back because something went askew with our uh, Skype connection here. So, folks, as we're getting Jonathan back on the line here, um, hang on. All right, Jonathan's coming back. Are you there, Jonathan? I'm here. Okay, I'm here. So Psalm 38, 9 through 11. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Sometimes, now again, we're going through Psalm 38 each segment and, and picking out pieces of the psalm that help us understand the, 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 the mind that gets into such despair. Sometimes we perceive loneliness when we can't in fact have support if we were only able to see it and accept it. And many times that's the case. You feel like you're entirely alone, but really actually you're not, but you're just not capable of seeing what's around you. 
So for those suffering with suicidal thoughts, what, what's, a, what, what's a good piece of advice to, to at least try to, try to put into play in your life? Reach out in spite of your loneliness. That may be almost too hard to do. So that means those of us who know someone who might be struggling, what should we be doing? Try to see through their protective shell and reach through to their loneliness. Because more often than not, they're not going to be able to reach out. Now, if they can, that's wonderful. But if they can't, those of us who see something not quite right should go with that gut instinct and, 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 and be a friend. Take an extra moment. Do something extra for that individual and see if you can help their loneliness not be so lonely. And, you know, it's easier said than done. We're going to go back to John Neuenberg from his TED Talk. Um, and he's, in, in this particular soundbite, Jonathan, he, he addresses the importance of that, of, of having other people with you. After my attempt, I received an unexpected gift, the unconditional love and support of my partner, Jennifer, and two of my brothers, Roy. <laughs> Roy, <coughs> excuse me, Roy and Jim, with whom <coughs> she shared my secret. It's with their help that I survived. At the time, I didn't think their help was available. And you've got to see, you've got to watch the TED Talk to see this. This man, he must be in his 50s, going through that emotional remembering of the the golden privilege of others being available that, that you did not expect. And all they needed to do was know something was wrong and they were right there. And that should be a real, real, real uh, powerful, powerful lesson for us. Jonathan, we don't have time to read it, but James 5, 13 to 18 talks about, you know, if you're spiritually sick, you know, Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you and so forth. And, and prayer can be used in many ways, and one of which is, is, is as a tool of humble fellowship and spiritual healing. Praying together can put things in a better perspective. And then it talks about, in verses 16 through 18, it talks about fellowship. And the, the principle of fellowship is so important. True fellowship means trusting others with your hurt and with your failure. And one of the things I want to mention here, because we haven't mentioned it yet, and, and it really needs to be put out there, is that, look, just because we're Christians doesn't mean you don't need extra help. It doesn't mean you don't need therapy. It doesn't mean you don't need medication. Those are things that are necessary with illnesses and deep depression is, can be easily be a, a very restrictive illness that needs treatment. So just because you're a Christian, don't, don't, don't ignore those other things. And Rick, it's important as Christians to share to, with others what's on our hearts and minds. And this way, if we're vulnerable to them and they need help, they'll come to us because we have that open door uh, mentality that they can share with us because we've shared with them. Right, right. Let's go back to Mark Hennick. We're almost out of time for the first hour, and uh, he is looking at his second suicide attempt. My perception 
was collapsing. It was squeezing out that instinctual hope that everybody has inside them. So I climbed the railing in three parts, like rungs on a ladder. I was being very careful not to slip. I climbed back down the other side again. I had very few choices in my life. But this, this was certainly one. And I needed something, anything that I could be certain about. So I turned around. And I felt the railing pressing against my back just below my shoulder blades. I stretched my arms out on its cool metal surface. I remember feeling raindrops under my fingers. I looked down at my shoes. My running shoes were old, worn out, tired. My heels were on the concrete. My toes were on nothing. I looked past my toes to the ground, 50 or so feet below. And on the ground I saw a rusted out chain link fence topped by three strings of barbed wire. As I was standing there in that moment, the only thing that I could think from my collapsed perception was how far out would I need to jump from this bridge so I wouldn't land on that fence? Because I just didn't want it to, I just didn't want it to hurt anymore. And you get a sense of the great, great despair. And, and you know, it's amazing that he re recalls this with such precision. Uh, it just gives you a, a real true sense of the, of the depth of what was happening and, and the, the presence of that moment in that constricted mental condition. And Jonathan, we got maybe a minute left, less than a minute. So let's just go. This is about loneliness. And, you know, we can combat loneliness with the reality of how the body of Christ works. Everyone's important in the body of Christ, and everybody contributes no matter how small you might be. 1 Corinthians 12, 20-23. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the body members which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and on our less presentable members become more, much more presentable. So there you see um, a very uh, poignant uh, situation that, 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 that happens with the body of Christ. And um, you know what? I seem to have... Now this is interesting. I seem to have lost my, uh, <laughs> my music to end this segment. So that's going to be interesting. So here's what we're going to do, Jonathan. We, we, I don't know where it went. <laughs> so I'm going to get out of this window. We're going to tell you that we're going to take a quick break. And actually, you know what we're going to do, Jonathan, is um, because I can't find, I just went away. I don't know where it went. Um, let's go to the next soundbite. I was actually going to skip and play in the next, uh, in the next hour because it, it, um, it further tells the story of what happened to this young man okay so he's on on the railing we're not going to take a break at the top of the hour that's what i'm telling you okay gotcha. uh, so he's on the railing and he's looking down and the only thought in his mind is how far to jump because he is afraid of more pain because he's got to he's got to clear that fence now you think about it, it's like well, where is the sense and the answer is there is none and why is there none because your field of perception has shrunk down so small that there is nothing left for you to look at. Being part of the body of Christ, Jonathan, even if you're the smallest member, can help to combat that 
if you can bring yourself to realize that even the weakest, most vulnerable part of the body, even that part of the body still has great value. As a matter of fact, the scripture you just read said it has even greater value because it is, uh, because it's so vulnerable. And when you think about that, before the soundbite, Jonathan, I just want to get this thought out. When we think about that, what that's really telling us is that the, um, the body of Christ, when, when you are vulnerable like that, what it means is you have more to offer in that ministry of reconciliation because of the difficulties, because of the limitations that you had and were faithful through. So those members of the body that look so big and so strong and so powerful and so overwhelming, you say, I could never be like them. That's not what makes it. What makes it is overcoming in Christ. And if you overcome and you are, and you are plagued with depression and you've been through these kinds of things, what greatness you have to bring to others. That's where we can find some of our value if we're Christians going through all of these experiences. So let's go to the, the next soundbite. Um, and again, this is Mark Hennick, this TED Talk in Toronto. And he just told us that he's on the ledge. And the only thought at this point is how far out does he have to jump to clear that fence down there because he doesn't want to die in pain. He just wants to die. Now that's interesting. Guess we're going to end this hour now, and we're going to come back a little bit later. <laughs> For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, I'm confused, but hey, you know, life is good because we have the grace of God to rely on through whatever our trials and difficulties might be. What we need to do is focus on that reality and say, whatever my situation, whatever my circumstance, there are those who love me, I just need to find them, and we need to find those who are in such trial and difficulty. Jonathan and I will be back in just a couple of minutes, but till then, is suicide an unforgivable sin? No. We'll be back soon. Think about it. Now, see, Jonathan didn't go into the commercials. <laughs> We're back. All right. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. This is our second hour. It's not going quite the way I thought it would, but hey, you know, sometimes life doesn't. Let's go back to the soundbite. My sound entire bite. life was completely in my control. And when you're living in a hurricane like this all the time, that's a really unfamiliar but really satisfying feeling, to feel like you have control over your whole life. So I stayed like that for a while. I just stood there in that feeling, experiencing that feeling of having agency over my life for a change. Eventually, I was brought back into the present by a man's voice over my right shoulder. I talked to him for a while, but even today, I don't remember about what. He was wearing a light brown jacket, but I don't remember his face. I didn't look back long enough, and I never saw him again. So the man in the light brown jacket appeared essentially out of nowhere and began talking to this young man who was about to take his own life. And what he did is he stalled it off a little bit. 
he gave him something else to think about. Even though, even though Mark Hennick says, I couldn't remember what we talked about. But it was the fact that he gave him some other voice. And that, that created a little bit more time, a little bit more in terms of, of, of potential outside options. Because remember, when you are in a, in a position where you are ready to take your own life, what you feel like is there is no other choice. I have one choice. This is it. There's nothing else left for me to do. Jonathan, and Rick, Rick, they're only hearing their own voice. Right. There is no outside source. And here, this man became, in an instant, an outside source. Yes, and, and that is so important. And, you know, we've been talking about those of us who observe people in our lives who, are, who are, 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 are depressed and having great, great challenges. We need to be able to be another voice somehow or other. You know, you can't fix it, but you can still be a voice. And folks, look. If you are having issues with this, you can text GO, G-O, to 741-741. Text GO and text that to 741-741. Or you can call 800-273-8255, 800-273-TALK, 800-273-TALK. That is a suicide hotline. Jonathan, let's review um, what we talked about in, in the first hour, there were two sets of thoughts. Um, first, for those suffering with suicidal thoughts, what, what, what were we saying according to Scripture they, they can start to do? Acknowledge your despair. And sometimes that's hard. But if you can begin to acknowledge it. See, an issue that's acknowledged, you've now started the process, and it can be a long and tedious process, but you've started the process of healing. Now, for those of us who know someone who might be struggling, what should we do with that despair? Take clear notice of their despair. Just don't take notice. Not a passing notice. Not a passing, oh, just look at that. Clear notice of that despair. And if we can take clear notice, then we can maybe have the courage, the courage to do something about that clear notice. Uh, What's next? For those suffering with suicidal thoughts, what are they to do? Reach out in spite of your loneliness. And again, sometimes that reaching out will seem like it's out of the question. And if you can't, we get it. But maybe make the effort and see what happens. And Rick, for those who know someone who may be struggling, what's their option? What we should try to do is see through their protective shell and reach through their loneliness. And and, and Jonathan, I've had the... The, 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 the sad experience of knowing several people who've actually uh, taken their own lives uh, and known others who have talked about it. And this is so important to try to reach through that protective shell um, and, and reach through their loneliness and touch them and give them somebody to trust, somebody to believe in. And you know, a lot of times people in this situation, they may not be a Christian. It doesn't mean that they, they can't trust in you. Give them something to hold on to because their despair is overwhelming. And we're going to go back now to another, another soundbite on this. This is from a young lady. Her name is Shraddha Shankar. She's giving a TED Talk, and she's maybe, maybe 20 years old or so. Uh, she had, Jonathan, she had attempted suicide, I think, 14 different times. Wow. So, you know, she is speaking from vast 
experience in her short life, vast, tortured experience. And what she's going to talk about here is that, that feeling, that sense that there, there's just no way out. Because you see, this was a problem with no visible solution. If I break my leg, I can see what has happened. I slap a cast on it for six to eight weeks, and I'm good to go. But mental illnesses don't really work the same way. Fortunately, you can't see anything. You have no idea what's going on. All you have is an obscure set of symptoms that could be caused by any number of things. And you're somehow forced to understand how to treat someone who says, I think I'm seeing things, and I want to die every day. And that's a little harder to treat than my stomach hurts. And so that was the way life went from now on. And see, this lack of visibility almost forces us to freeball it. This usually means cycling through medication, going to one after another, as long as it takes to find the right one. If you're lucky, it just takes a couple of weeks. For most, it takes a couple months, and in my case, about a year to a year and a half. So you can see that, you know, to find the right medication, and that is such a key thing. It took her a very, very long time in her very, very short life. And she was tormented by the biology of her own mind. And so medication is so important. Treatment is so important. Let's get back to Psalm 38 from David's dark and lonely existence. Remember, because that's where he was when we last left this psalm, comes the daily struggle with his enemies. And enemies can come in all shapes and sizes. Psalm 38, 12 to 14. Those who seek me lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. And they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. And so, you know, his enemies were around him, and they were overwhelming him, and he's saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to listen. But, you know, sometimes we can perceive our enemies to be so tenacious and so powerful that they're more powerful than our allies. Now, that, that may not be the truth. But if that's what we perceive, then that's all we got. So for those of us suffering with suicidal thoughts, Jonathan, based on this portion of the psalm and that perception of enemies as so tenacious, what should we try and do? Realize that with help, you can begin to silence the voices of your perceived enemies. And again, those can be literal voices in your head. They can be the voices of your experiences. They, they can be past experiences. They can be all kinds of different things. Somehow you need to get some help, a helping hand, to be able to put that in perspective. And for those of us who might know someone who's struggling, what can we do? Be a balm of comfort to empower the silencing of the voices that bring despair. Rick, I like the phrase balm of comfort uh, because balm is used to heal or soothe. Right. And that's what we want to be for someone who needs help. Right. We want to be soothing. And with that in mind, the next soundbite, Jonathan, is utterly despicable and shocking, but it's true. And we need to understand that in the midst of the sensitivity and the despair of the subject matter that we're talking about, things like this, and this is going back to Mark Hennick and this second attempt on his own life, this is actually what happened to him. Before I knew it, I could see flashing lights from the corner of my eyes. I looked to my right and to my left, 
and there were three police cars on either side blocking off the street. There are crowds of late-night gatherers gawking at me from either side. This was two, three in the morning, I guess. A male voice from my right side. I heard him scream to me, Jump, you coward! Okay, that's enough. Again, I took a deep breath in. And as I did, my arms, they seemed to rise from the railing, like they'd suddenly become weightless and unburdened. I could feel the edge of the concrete under the arches of my feet begin to shift. I started to pitch forward. And as I did, I felt the wind blow around my body and on my face and through my hair, and it felt free. Then an arm reached around my chest. A hand grabbed the back of my shirt. The man in the light brown jacket later told police that my body was completely limp when he grabbed me and he dragged me backward over the railing. Boy, if that doesn't make you swallow your 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 throat, I mean, it just, it just how jump you coward? What? Oh, that is awful, Rick. Awful. Hey, um, Jewel and I had a sad experience, and I'd like her to share it with us. Okay. Hi. About several years ago, we were on our way to Bible study on a Sunday morning, and we were traveling over a large bridge in our area, and. We were diverted um, and slowed down by policemen who were um, not only parked all over the bridge, but walking around on the bridge. And we looked to the side, and there was a man who was holding on to the bridge railings and looking through from the other side from towards the outside. us. It, from yeah, the, he was other on the outside, side yeah. Of the bridge. Right. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes, right. And he, anyway, so he, um, he had a horrible look of anguish and despondency on his face. And all we could do was pray on our way to Bible study and just wished that we could have gotten out so that we could have shared God's love and plan with him. But obviously we couldn't. But it is a sight and experience that Jonathan and I will never forget. And that is a hard experience. Thank you, Jewel, for, for that. It, it is a hard experience to, to, to be so close to such incredible despair just so close to such incredible loss of 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 perspective because again your field of perception as mark hennick has told us in his experiences just shrinks down to this one thing that's all you have left in your life is just this one thing and again jonathan for a christian when we look at the experiences it's important for us to realize that treatment is important therapy is important Medication is desperately important in all of these things. But then we can take our faith and use that as well. Our faith doesn't replace those physical things that we need. A broken leg needs a doctor. It needs to be physically fixed. The biology of our minds sometimes need to be uh, physically managed, but our faith can now lift us above. And the thing that we can take comfort in is Jesus is literally able to silence the dark voices of evil spirit beings. And Jonathan, some of the the voices that people hear, I believe, actually is uh, dark and evil uh, spirit beings. Let's look at Luke chapter 8, verses 27 to 39. We'll go through some selected verses on this very dramatic story of Jesus silencing voices. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do you have 
with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High. I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So the demon is tormenting this boy, and Jesus had commanded him to come out. And, and, and the, the, the demon's voice, what business do you have with me, Jesus? He knows who Jesus is. See, there's fear and respect in the voice of those fallen spirit beings that were addressing Jesus. Continue. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. See, Jesus granted this permission, for this was not yet the time for their judgment. That would come later. They knew they were going to be judged, but Jesus knew that this was not the time. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right hand, and they became frightened. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, what great things Jesus had done for him. So the thing I love about this scripture is it ends with, when, when the demons had gone out and all the dust settles, this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed and in, he is in his right mind. Jesus silenced and vanquished those voices. And that's what our faith can help do for us. Now again, that doesn't supersede medication. It doesn't supersede treatment. But that's what faith can do. Jonathan, let's go back to um, the TED Talk by uh, Mark Hennick one, uh, one more time in this segment because, again, he's feeling like there's only one choice. Can suicide really be a choice if it's the only choice available? We ask ourselves, how can it be the only choice? How can it even be a rational choice? And hopefully we wonder and we ask ourselves how we can help. Well, we can start to help by better appreciating that our mental health is contingent on this state and the flexibility of our perceptions. Whether we have a mental illness or not, how expanded or how contracted our perception becomes impacts the choices that we make. When I was standing on that bridge, my perception was so collapsed that I only had that one choice. And Jonathan, for those of us who, who don't understand that circumstance, we need to listen to something like that and say, okay, that's how it feels inside, and you have to give that person the benefit of the doubt that they only have one choice. They don't know what else they can do, and this is all they have. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject is... Is suicide an unforgivable sin? Coming up, where do you find hope when you are so overwhelmed with despair? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. 
Welcome back. Our subject for today is, is suicide an unforgivable sin? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Monday evening. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, as we uh, move forward through this this discussion, this important discussion on what do you do? How do you manage the, 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 the depth of the despair that overwhelms someone to bring them to the point where they only see themselves as having one choice? And this, this happens to a lot of people. And there, there's, you know, with the statistics at the beginning of the program were, were, were quite profound, but realize that 90% of people who attempt to, 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 to uh, take their own lives don't succeed. So you've got a lot of people that are, are stuck in this situation. Let's go back to um, the TED Talk by Mark Hennick. And uh, he's addressing this now, and he's really making this what it is. And this is a public health concern. Now, when we encounter the suicide of somebody else, we always seem to try to rationalize it. I hear it all the time. And I think that's because we're uncomfortable with feeling helpless and with not understanding. But since we know that our perceptions are created and continually informed by our biology, by our psychology, and by our society, we actually have many entry points for potentially helping and better understanding suicide. One way that we can help is to stop saying that people commit suicide. People commit rape, they commit murder, but nobody has committed suicide in this country since the early 1970s when suicide was decriminalized. And that's because suicide is a public health concern, not a criminal one. And that is such an important point. Uh, and that, that is so interesting. I never thought of it from that perspective before. Yeah, and, and it really is quite uh, uh, important to understand that um, uh, suicide is a public health concern. It is not something, it's not a criminal act. And it was decriminalized back in the 1970s. And uh, that puts us in a position of, of being able to understand it in a very, very different uh, sort of way. So, um, Jonathan, as we continue, we want to go back to David's daily struggle with his enemies. Remember, he had the struggle with his enemies. We talked about Jesus being able to silence the voices of, of our enemies. Uh, and at, with that struggle comes an acknowledgment in, in the 38th Psalm, and in his acknowledgment that God does have an answer and therefore is worthy of our hope. For I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, whom, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me, for I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. So what you have is David's beginning to look up. He's beginning to hope in the midst of darkness, though sometimes it feels feeble. Uh, and, and, and even when it feels feeble, it still can be a significant step toward blessing. And unless we take that step of figuring out how we can begin to look up, you're never going to be able to find the blessing. And that is such an important balancing act in this whole thing. So significant healing comes when we begin 
when we begin to look up. So for those suffering with suicidal thoughts, what should we be doing? Find a source of true hope. There is most likely one much closer to you than you've allowed yourself to think. So you've got to find a source of real hope. Not a, You know, a lot of times we're surrounded by all kinds of stories of hope, but it's not real. You need to find that real true friend or that, 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 that person that can bring you to the kind of help that you need. Find a source of true hope, and there's probably some right around you. It doesn't have to be big and profound. It just has to be real. And for those of us who know someone who's struggling, what should we be doing in, in terms of finding that hope? Be a willing source of or a conduit towards true hope. So maybe you're not their true hope. Maybe you don't know how to be. But can you bring them someplace where they can find it? Whether you can be it or not is not relevant. What's relevant is taking their hand, figuratively or literally, and walking that individual who is in such despair toward something that's so much more powerful that can be so much more powerful than the, the, the darkness that they're surrounded with. Let's go back to uh, another soundbite from Mark Hennick. And we keep going back to him because he does such an eloquent job of telling the story and helping us understand the value of the struggle. And when you hear his story, you can see a value that, that you and I would not, just, would not be able to tell because it just, it's, too, it's too poignant. It's, it, he, he was right there. He knows the struggle. He knows what it feels like. And uh, here, this has to do with the, the idea of getting the kind of help that you should have. Okay. Press play, and it's supposed to play. It really is. 90% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable and treatable mental illness at the time of their death. And we know that with medication therapy, these treatments work. So we need to make these treatments more available in an informed way to everybody. And we can be a part of that change, whether we have a mental illness or not, by taking charge of our own mental health. When we go in for our annual physical we make a point of doing an annual psychological, too. At both the individual and the societal levels, we can challenge our old ideas, like that old idea of saying that people commit suicide. So his point is very well taken. Treatment actually does work. And in order to be able to, to, to thrive, you need the help. You need that extra help, and it needs to be uh, professional. And oftentimes, medication really, really, really changes things. And, and Jonathan, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of an experience with an individual who, unless they have the right kind of medication, their, their mind just goes down the wrong kinds of roads. And with the right kind of medication, you can see... The, the clarity and the thinking, and, and they can come to other conclusions. It's still a struggle, but they can at least do it. Get the right kind of treatment if you're in, in the situation. So if you need of hope, it really helps to know where to look for that hope. We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. All right, so let's go to Psalm 42, uh, 1 to 11. Uh, and again, we're going to kind of breeze through this. But this is, if you, know, if you notice, we keep going to so many different psalms, and in all of these different psalms, David is suffering. 
with something very traumatic in his life. But each time as he suffers, he's finding his source of true hope because he was a man of faith. That's why he was called a man after God's own heart. He had the, the, the great emotional turmoil, but he also knew where to eventually uh, go so that it could be put in perspective. Psalm 42, let's start with verses 1 to 3. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And I, I, I love the beginning of the psalm, because what David is doing, he's, you know, he's, he's looking He's looking to the source that he knows is hopeful. And he says, you know, my soul thirsts for God the way a deer pants for the water in the brook. I mean, the deer needs that water to refresh it. And David is saying, my soul needs God to refresh it, to help me to be stable again. And even though God may not seem close to him, he's still looking. He's still searching. Sometimes we just need to talk ourselves through the storm to find our true north. And in this next section of the psalm, that's what he's going to do. He's going to talk himself through the storm. He's going, and and there, there, there's great value in this, Jonathan, the, the idea that you say, okay, here's where I am. There's where I need to go. And I know that where I am is not a good place. And I don't want to be here, but here I am. And, and again, in dealing with folks who have had depression, you, they can tell you, I know what I'm, where I'm supposed to be, and I know where I am, and I know there's this great void in between. And part of the challenge is that feeling of helplessness to be able to navigate through that void. And what I've often found is that when I just listen and give feedback, and listen, and give feedback, and not try to tell them what to do or how to do it, but to encourage by way of listening and, and validating the, the difficulty and the pain, that's where the greatest uh, source of comfort comes, and they can begin to navigate through. And that's what David does in these next verses, Psalm 42, verses uh, 5 through 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shatterer of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So he's, he, if, you, if you listen to that, he's going back and forth. It's like having that argument with yourself. And you know, you're, you're saying, I, I'm, I'm, I've got to pray, and I know God is my rock. Why have you forgotten me? But wait, I know he hasn't forgotten me. You know, uh, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling broken. 
and, and then at the end he says, hope in God, for I, sh- I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. In other words, I'm not able to praise him yet, but I know. I know that if I stay true to what I believe in, even though I can't feel it now, I will later if I stay true to it. And that reminds me of what Mark Hennick said in one of his earlier sound bites. He said, you know, I ask myself, should I hang on for one more day? And this is a, this is a formula to hang on for one more day. It's a formula to say, I know I'm not there, but I know God is there. And I know that if I am just patient enough, I can find him again. And you just hang on for that one more day. That's what David was doing. In spite of the desperate experiences and, and doubt that I may face, God can lift my countenance again. And what a profound thought that is. Even though it's not there at your fingertips, you still know that God can pull you back up. Rick, sometimes help and hope are closer than we can imagine. You know, they are. And, you know, and, and, and that help can come from the most unlikely sources. And that's true. That's so true. And there's a great scripture with that, with with the unlikely source of help for someone who is about to commit. Or, uh, I don't want to say it that way. I apologize. Who is about to take their own life. Okay, Okay. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 30. This is an account of a man who is about to take his own life. Listen to what happens and, and why, and then see who comes to his rescue. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So he sees the circumstance and he says, that's it, I'm done, and he's ready to die. What happens? But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. An unexpected voice can bring unexpected hope and can lead to our lives changing. One of the prisoners who, now when you think about it, the prisoners in the, in, in the cells, if that had happened, would you have hung around to see if the jailer was okay? No way. <laughs> no, you, escape. Escape. You, right. You run, you run, you run. But see, the Apostle Paul was all about life. And he observed this man in that moment of despair, and he cried out, don't worry, we're all here. And what happens? And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So you have a great, great picture of a voice of reason, a voice of life unexpectedly coming to spare that man's life. He was ready to take his own life, Jonathan. And and Rick... His commander told the jailer, do not let this man escape. Right. Paul. Right, right. You know, if he does, uh, well, you lose your life. Well, right. <laughs> and, 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 and in those days, that's exactly what it would have been. You wouldn't have just been fired or fined. You would have died for, for such, uh, such a, a lack of attention to that kind of a job. But, but knowing that he would have been killed if this prisoner escaped, why would he have tried to, to 
hurt himself the way he was going to. Well, I think it was because he just didn't want to have the public humiliation of 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 failing in that job. You know, because with that comes that public humiliation, especially in those days. It was a public thing, and and rather than suffer that humiliation and that feeling of 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 despair, he said, "I'm just going to end it now." I just because I have nothing left. And again, his field of perception narrowed right down to there is only one choice. And by God's grace, the Apostle Paul hears that and responds to it and says, don't, we're all here. And the result is this man comes to Christ. And his whole household. <laughs> so, so you can see that that voice, that, that unexpected voice can bring an unexpected result. And who knows, folks, maybe you can be that unexpected voice for that person who is suffering from such despair in their lives. And again, if you are suffering from such despair, text GO, G-O, and text it to 741-741, or Jonathan, there's a phone number you can call. That's right. It's 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. That is a -a 24-hour-a-day suicide hotline. Folks, if you are feeling that kind of despair, don't wait. Reach out because your life, your life has incredible value. Sometimes we just can't see it in ourselves. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our episode is, Is Suicide an Unforgivable Sin? Coming up, once we begin to see hope as a real possibility, what should we do next? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is suicide and unforgivable sin. We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL, or you can message us on your app. Out from the dark ages and into the light of today, join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so Jonathan, as we move into our final segment, um, we want to start this off uh, with another soundbite. I know there's a lot of them, but there's so it's so much more valuable to hear the, the words of wisdom, if you will, from those who've been through it and, rather than us. Um, and so this next soundbite is from uh, Shraddha Shankar. This is the young lady who tried to commit suicide, uh, tried to take her own life 13 or 14 times. And she makes a great analogy here of mental illness and cancer. Listen, listen carefully because this reveals a lot about our, our, our perceptions of suicide. The thing is people can suffer from really bad depression. They can be on the verge of attempting suicide, but if they dare ask for help, They're labeled as attention-seeking and crazy. And people know this. They do know this. And therefore, they figure it might be better to keep quiet than to speak. For some reason, when people come out about having cancer, their Facebook post gets about 100 likes. 
Their peers might start a Facebook support group page for them. And this illness is taken so seriously that there's a specific foundation that specializes in taking these kids to Disneyland. And when they die, if they die, they're seen as warriors, people who were courageous, who fought till the end. And I'm not saying they're not. But for some reason, when someone commits suicide because they just can't tolerate the psychotic episodes anymore, and they can't handle the constant change in medication that seems to trigger a cycle of paranoia, hot sweats, nausea on a daily basis, they just can't take it anymore. They're seen as, self they're seen as selfish and weak. And it's truly astonishing and saddening that two illnesses can, that can be just as painful as each other, just as fatal as each other, and have the same consequences as each other are seen so differently. It really does say something, doesn't it? How sobering. And, and you know, we, we need to understand that suicide, depression, is an illness and needs to be understood and treated like other illnesses that are really, really serious. And again, I can't say it enough. Treatment is appropriate. You know, you're not some weakling because you need treatment because most likely your mind is biologically not balanced. So you need the medication and the professionals to help you put that back in balance, just like you need the professional to say, you need radiation therapy for this cancer. You need an operation. The same thing. It's the same thing. Let's get back to Psalm 38, verses 18 to 21. Now, from acknowledging God's answer and hope comes trust. Becoming vulnerable before God in all honesty. And see, that's what trust really is, to be able to be vulnerable before God with great honesty. With this trust comes a stated desire for God's presence in and around our struggles. And that's what David does in Psalm 38, verses 18 to 21. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So you can see that he's, he's still confessing. He's still full of anxiety. Uh, he's, he's acknowledging his enemies, their, their strength. Uh, but he said, you know, don't forsake me, O Lord. Don't be far. Make haste to help me. Now, remember, he's not feeling like the help is right there, but he's looking for it and he knows it's coming. So in the midst of the despair, there is the hope and there is the trust. Vulnerability before God is a very freeing experience for it means that our complete trust is in the hands of the mighty creator who absolutely knows what's best for us. And that, isn't that the key? Amen. In the hands of he who knows what is best for us. So, for those of us suffering with suicidal thoughts, what should we do? Truly work at trusting your source of true hope. All right. It takes work to trust. And for those of us who know someone who might be struggling, what should we do? Be a trustworthy and steady fixture in the process of delivering true hope. Again, you may not be that true hope, but you can help to deliver it. You can, you can be the ride to the doctor or to the therapist, or you can be the person who picks up the medication, or you can be the person who just calls and says, hey, how you doing? Or let's get a cup of coffee, or I was thinking about you today. 
Those are all the kinds of things that we can bring to the table to help someone who's going through such despair. Back one more time, actually it's one more time after this, but one more time to Mark uh, Hennick, his TED Talk in, in Toronto, Why We Choose Suicide. And again, the, <laughs> li listen to the content of this next minute because it really helps you to understand the depth of this tragic, tragic illness that brings us to the point of wanting to take our own lives. When I first started out doing this, I used to beg for somebody to do something about suicide and stigma. Well, that's not acceptable anymore. So instead, I've started doing something. When a leading cause of death among new mothers in the first year after childbirth is suicide, that's not acceptable either. When our First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities are being ravaged by a suicide rate five to six times higher than the national average, that's not acceptable. When almost a quarter of 15 to 20 year olds, 15 to 25 year olds, sorry, who die at all, die by suicide, that is not acceptable. So like I said, when I used to plead for people to do something, and that's not acceptable either, well, you're here, and you're doing something already. Because you're changing the way you think, and that's what changes the world. And that is acceptable, changing the way we think. And Rick, that, that's kind of where we come from. Think about the Bible like you never have before. There's right. our mission. It's to bring hope to a sin-sick world uh, full with difficulties and, and challenges and point them in the right direction to God and his word. And we hope we can make a difference in, in what we're doing. But Mark is also reaching out to those that have a focus in suicide that can make a difference there too. Right. So hopefully we can each use what we have in our hands and, and do it for the betterment of all. And, you know, as, as, as Christians, it really is an important aspect to, to understand, look, we're, we follow in Jesus' footsteps, but we're not Jesus. Jesus could look at you, and he could read your heart, and he could read your mind. He, could, he understood. We don't. So we have to focus and pay attention and observe, and then we have to act. And it's, with something like this, and again, it really goes back to depression, and all of the things that come with depression. And there's so many reasons that people can come upon depression. Some of us are born prone to those kinds of things. Some of us have experiences in life that bring us to those kinds of things. Some of us go in and into it, then out of it, then into it, then out of it. Whatever it is, we just need to realize that there is hope. There is hope. There is hope because there are many of us that can help lift one another up. Now, can we cure it? No but we can help the person next to us. And I think, Jonathan, for me, that's, that's really the, sort of the wake-up call of, of, of doing the preparation for this particular program, is am I willing enough and observant enough to help the person who's, who's close to me? Am I looking? Am I aware? Am I compassionate enough? And that brings me to, to, to our, our, our next scripture. The next scripture from the Apostle Paul really pulls it all together because there's really essentially four areas that we talked about uh, in dealing with suicide uh, uh, the, this evening. What are those four areas? Acknowledge the despair, reach out in spite of the loneliness, 
silence the enemy's voice, find true hope, and trusting in that true hope. So there's those four essential aspects that we've discussed through Psalm 38. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. The Apostle Paul is going to deal with those four aspects of our dealing with each other. And let, let's read verses 3 and 4 to begin with, and then, and then sort of set the stage once we've got some of the verses on the table. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, and the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You notice how in his encouraging us, he's sharing some of his own experience. He's saying, who comforts us in our affliction so we can comfort others. He's saying, I have the difficult in draining trials of suffering just like you do. But those trials come with comfort. See, when I read these verses, folks, what I want, what I want you to do is listen to these verses and picture the Apostle Paul as your big brother. Picture him saying, I know what you're going through. I've been exactly where you are. I know how that feels. But let me tell you what I've learned as a result of my own experience. And maybe it can help you in yours. He, in these verses, has this compassionate, big brother approach. And he's really saying to us, look, I get it. It's okay. And what a great Christian example that is for us. So in those first two verses, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, um, he was saying, look, I have had the same draining experiences that you've had, but I've seen the comfort. Let me share it with you. Now we're going to go to verses 5, and, five through 7 to get the second point of reaching out in spite of the loneliness. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we were comforted, it is for your comfort, which is evident in the patient enduring of such sufferings which we also suffer. Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So you see that he's saying, okay, you're sharing the same sufferings. Now, you may be having entirely different experiences, but our sufferings are for the same end result. Um, the comfort that we have may come through different channels, but the comfort that you're going to get is the same comfort that we have. The apostle, big brother Paul, is saying to me, my experiences, though they're mine, can be shared with you, for you're part of the same body as me. You see, we're all in this together. And as Christians, if one of our brothers or sisters is suffering from this debilitating uh, pressure of, 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 of depression, and maybe it's post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, it could be a number of different things. We can go to them as a brother or a sister and say, look, I'm with you. We're connected. You hurt and I hurt. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We're part of the same body. And you know how it works. You know, if you, if you, if, have you ever like banged your thumb with a hammer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and man, the pain. And you know, you're, you want, you're kind of like jumping up and down and you're holding that thumb and you're, and every part of you is like 
tense and focused on that thumb. That's the way it is. That's the way the Apostle Paul is, is directing us here. Verses uh, 8, 8 and 9. For we do not know you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we were despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, big brother Paul, he's saying, look, we were tried beyond what we thought possible, especially me personally, this is Paul speaking, to the very door of death, and yet we overcame the chilling call of death and, the def and, and, and defeat by faith in the one who brings life. I, he's saying, I know how you feel. Let's get through this together. Verses 10 and 11. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us? He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So... He just said, I, 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 myself, I even despaired of life. And so his fourth point, big brother Apostle Paul is saying, our hope is provable and alive. I mean, it's a provable hope because we have the scriptures, we have God's will, we have God's plan, we have prophecies and all of that. And that gives us the inspiration to truly trust in God as we continue. What he's saying, Jonathan, is, look, it is very difficult. I know how you feel. I have been there myself, but we have something special. We've got the power of God before us, behind us, and in us. Keep on keeping on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's go to our final soundbite, Jonathan. We're almost out of time. One last time from Mark Hennick, and uh, this is about keeping this conversation going. So for those of you who might be thinking about suicide today, good. Keep thinking about it and then start talking about it. And then start doing something about it too. And for those of you who might be contemplating suicide, I know that there's a hope somewhere deep inside you. I've felt it too. Keep that hope alive. We need you. We need you to be leaders in this conversation, whether we are ready to have it or not. And trust me, if you're anything like me, it's this conversation that's going to keep you alive. Every single day as though you've got just one more day. Thank you. And so, Jonathan, you know, it's the conversation that keeps things going. And he's so, he's it's such a powerful, powerful thought. I want to end with, I just got handed a, a, a CQ app comment. This comes from Melbourne, Australia. And the comment is, truly understand your child's feelings and thoughts so you don't force them into a position where they feel like they have no option. The parents have a responsibility to make sure their choice of how they direct their child's life does not force them into despair and want to take their own life. Love your children and don't force your ideals on them. Teach them your ideals. Show them your ideals. Live your ideals. But you can't force a child, but you can you can have great power of persuasion by the way that you live, by the compassion with which you speak, and by the strength of the, your discipline as well. So taking care of our children is one aspect of this thing, but the bottom line, Jonathan, is a lot of people are suffering right here and right now uh, with depression. Many, many, many people have tried to take their own lives, 
and it's a very, very sad circumstance, and now we have some answers. And the Apostle Paul also tells us in Galatians 6, 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So that's part of what we need to do. We need to stand up and be strong and bear the burdens of others. Because as we go through life, we will encounter, we will encounter those who are having such despair. And if we can just bring ourselves to the point to see and to react with that compassion of Jesus and that big brother attitude of the Apostle Paul and reach out, maybe we can't solve the problem, but we can contribute to them getting the help that they need. It's our faith in God that can give us the strength the strength and the fortitude to help those in need. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we truly hope this has been helpful. Very difficult subject. And uh, you know what? There's always, always hope. Always there's hope. Suicide is serious. Let's think about it. Let's act. Until next week, think about it. <laughs>